Hello and welcome to the Seeking Health Podcast with Josiah and Angeska Meyer. And today we have a special guest, uh, Kristen Dumay. And Kristen Dumay is a professor of history and gender studies at Kelvin University. She holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame. And her research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. She has written for the Washington Post, Religious News Service, Christianity Today, Christian Century, and religious, Religion and Politics, and has been interviewed on NPR, the CBC, by CNN, and the New York Times, as well as some other outlets. And she blogs at Patheos's Anxious Bench. And her most recent book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. And that book, my wife and I read uh, recently and just really turned the lights on for us. Yeah, so much. <laughs> because we've been in this journey. We, we've been missionaries for seven years, raising the church, all the things. Um, and then we had to kind of step back from that and we were kind of processing things in our own lives and our own selves. And then 2020 happened, 2019 and 2020. And so many things kind of did not seem healthy about what we were raised with, what we were sharing as evangelicalism. And so we're kind of trying to sort that out, um, where things went wrong, what is unhealthy about our version of Christianity. And we found your book extremely helpful in just explaining, like putting into words a lot of the things that we just had kind of had gut feeling intuitions about. And so uh, I just want, before I say anything else, I just want to say thank you so much for writing such a good scholarly book on this topic because it was like every paragraph, there's a footnote and I could tell that you did a lot of work and I understand what kind of work goes into a book like that. So I did want to just say thank you so much for putting so much work into this. Oh, thank you, and thank you for, for having me for this conversation. I mean, this is exactly why I wrote the book. Good. Yeah, for myself, um, just uh, with my background with religion, uh, evangelicalism, and this year, it's just like I just had to leave it all behind. Um, but I couldn't really figure out why, um, and your book was really, really helpful in realizing, like, a lot of this is actually American Christianity. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was like extremely helpful to me um, to hear your book. <laughs> but yes, thank you. <laughs> so this is just giving me a conversation. Yeah, I, Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I, I'll just say that the, um, you know, having observed, kind of participant observer of this tradition for a long time, I've I had that same feeling of, uh, you know, something's not right here. This isn't quite making sense. And there's a faith we profess, and then there's a faith that people are practicing. And so, yeah, I, I turned to history to, to really try to, to answer precisely those questions and to mm. see what, what it really was that we were looking at and how we got to this point. Yeah. Would you like to share some of what was it that led you to write this book? Because certainly you spent a lot of time researching this. Yeah, the, the idea for the book actually started more than 15 years ago. So I, um, oh, wow. I had a little bit of a jump start. Uh, I uh, was actually teaching a U.S. history class at Calvin University, a Christian university. And uh, I was teaching on Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, and mm. I, I used that as an opportunity to show students how gender works. Uh, that gender wasn't just about, uh, you know, kind of this personal thing, but it was linked to economic shifts and it was linked to race and 
uh, nationalism and foreign policy, and it was this nice little unit. And after class, a couple of students came up to me and said, Professor Dumay, there's this book you really have to read. And that book was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. Mm. And Eldridge opens his book with you know, a quote from Teddy Roosevelt, and he goes on to sketch this really militant and militaristic conception of Christian manhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so right, right then, I was, I was intrigued. I read Eldridge's book. I read other books in the genre. This was around 2005, 2006. So his book was already a bestseller, and there were many others out there. Mm-hmm. And what struck me right away was the fact that, uh, you know, for all their talk of being you know, Bible-believing Christians, the authors of these books weren't really drawing on the Bible to craft this yeah. vision of Christian manhood. Like they were looking to Hollywood heroes, mythological heroes, to Mel Gibson's William Wallace in the movie Braveheart, and then the actor John Wayne kept popping up, too, and I thought that was interesting. Now, again, this is 2005-2006. This was in the early years of the Iraq War, and I was watching survey data come out uh, showing how white evangelicals were far and away more militaristic than other Americans, more supportive of preemptive war, uh, more likely to condone the use of torture, to promote aggressive foreign policy. And so I just, I started asking, you know, how do these two things fit together? How does uh, this militant conception of, of Christian masculinity, how might that be linked to this very militaristic foreign policy? So that's really where the book started. I set it aside for a time. <laughs> I had other things going on. And, and I had this kind of nagging question of how, how, um, how mainstream is this, what I'm discovering? Because what yeah. I was uncovering was really disturbing very misogynistic and uh, just really seemed to contradict gospel teachings um, in terms of militarism and, and just militancy. Um, and and I, I wasn't sure quite how to figure that out. Um, and so I set it aside for a time, always planning to come back to it. And then in 2016 is when I thought, um, I, I think I need to dust off that old research, make sense of what we're seeing with respect to overwhelming support for um, Donald Trump. And, uh, and I realized that what we were seeing wasn't a betrayal of evangelical values, but it was part of a much longer tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually want to maybe read a little bit from your book here. Because um, you had said in your book, a- asking the question, how could family values conservatives support a man, Donald Trump, who floated every value that they insisted they held dear? How could the self-professed moral majority embrace a candidate who reveled in vulgarity? Pundits scrambled to explain. Evangelicals were holding their noses, choosing the lesser of two evils, and Hillary Clinton was the greatest evil. And you go on to explain that actually this evangelicals weren't going against their convictions, but they were voting with their convictions. Trump is somebody that... Um, they were deeply selecting because he lined up with the wild at heart William Wallace type of of man of of what a gender is supposed to look like. Um, can can you unpack a little bit what um, what is it that evangelicals are looking for in a leader, and where does that come from? Yeah, well, as a historian, I wanted to ask exactly that question: Where is this coming from? And yeah. I went back further, right? Not just the early 2000s and late, late 1990s, but I went back, um, really my research brought me to the 1940s, 1950s, um, and through the 1970s, really, as this 
critical uh, period for uh, the formation of, of evangelical identity, um, for evangelical partisan political identity to really coalesce, um, but also their um, views of gender, and particularly views of gender that were linked to Christian nationalism, and that's really a theme that runs through this book. Uh, so this was during the Cold War, uh, the late 40s, 1950s, when you had folks like Billy Graham really rallying evangelicals and, and saying that they had a unique role to play in defending America against communism, and communism you know, was perceived to be anti-God, anti-family, and anti-American. So it was just, you know, uh, evangelicals were, were right at the center of this and, um, and very militantly uh, anti-communist. And at that point, of course, communism was a military threat, and so the defense had to be a military defense or even an offense. Uh, and so I saw in that era, that's right at the time that evangelicals were really trying to reassert their power on the, the national stage. Uh, with the formation of the National Association of Evangelicals in 1942. And then in the 50s, you have kind of Billy Graham uh, alliance with uh, Eisenhower. And then since that time, you know, influence on the White House. And, um, and, and that was all like this crystallizing moment when, when I, see, I saw gender traditionalism, very distinct roles of masculinity and femininity linked up with this defense of the American nation. Now, at that time, it wasn't all that distinct, right? This was uh, in the 1950s, and they weren't all that different from a lot of other Americans. It was Cold War consensus. But it's the 1960s that this really starts to fracture, and a lot of Americans start to question, um, well, white supremacy with the civil rights movement. Also, we have the rise of the feminist movement, and so gender traditionalism is up for grabs. Um, but most significantly, we have the Vietnam War and the anti-war movement. And the combination of all of those uh, three it really seemed to uh, uh, destabilize American evangelicals, conservative evangelicals' perception of uh, their own power. And, uh, and that's when we see them really double down and, and, and this kind of militant masculinity, militant white masculinity, is the antidote to kind of this destabilization, the things that are threatening America at the time. And that's when it really becomes distinctive to evangelicals because so many other Americans are questioning those values, and that's when evangelicals see that they are kind of a faithful remnant, and it is up to them to to keep America strong and to keep Americans faithful, and they're doing it um, along these lines. And again, a militant white masculinity or patriarchy is absolutely central to that. So can you... Something that I found really interesting in your book was you talking about how the the notion of a Christian nation was developed in Cold War America. And something I didn't know was that In God We Trust was actually put on the money very recently in the 60s or something. Uh, I had always... Yeah. Because the narrative that we're told... And by the way, we're Canadian, but... Yeah. Almost all of our media comes from the United States, so like I know Canadian, yeah. I know American politics more than I know Canadian, and I know almost yeah. American history better than Canadian history, just because I just am inundated by it. But the story uh -huh. that I've that I've been told is, well, the Puritans came here because of religious persecution; they wanted to create a Christian nation, and everything was going great until the 1960s. All these Marxist feminists showed up and ruined everything, yeah. and we need to get back yeah. to our Puritan heritage. So is that yeah. how you as a historian would see things, or do you see maybe some nuance in there? <laughs> no, 
I mean, that's, that's a very problematic narrative, and it's a very white Christian narrative. I mean, just, just stepping back and, you know, let's make race visible here. The very idea that America was kind of God's chosen nation, a Christian America, everything was great until the 1960s, only makes sense if you're white. Yeah. <laughs> that mer- narrative makes no sense if you are a black Christian, if you're a black American. Uh, so, uh, but white Americans or white Christians who, who believe that to be true don't think in racial terms explicitly, right? And so they, they think this is just the way things are. This is Christian America. Um, and so I just want to make sure that, that, that whiteness is visible, and that's something I try to do in the book as well. Uh, but no, American history is, is much more complicated than that, and you know there are some you know, bits of truth in that. Um, but you know, our, our Puritans, really America's founders, or we have a lot of other um, settlers coming to to the United States. You know, we have separation of church and state. We have um, just so much more complexity there, and then ultimately, it, it kind of comes down to. Uh, this bigger question of what does it mean to be a Christian nation? Mm-hmm. Uh, does it mean to have some leaders who profess their faith in God and in Jesus Christ? You know, how many of them need to do so? Does it mean that the laws of the land reflect biblical values? What does that look like? Who gets to decide what those values are? Does it mean that there is liberty and justice for all? And is that aspirational or is that actually achieved, right? These are the questions, particularly, again, when you bring in uh, race uh, and look at slavery. And is that part of our founding narrative? And then and what does it mean to be a Christian nation? How does that link to militarism, to American power? Um, so we need to complicate that. And, and when you look at uh, American history with those questions in mind, uh, yeah, it's it's very difficult to assert that America was this this you know kind of chosen nation with this particular religious identity. Um, that's uh, you know been true in terms of American exceptionalism. Americans like to think of themselves in that way, but the actual history is much more complicated. Um, but that notion does get revived in the 1950s and mm. 1960s with a civil religion and. Again, against the backdrop of communism, this is what makes America good and great and distinctive. And these are the things that we need to preserve about America, this you know Christian America. So, so the, the idea was that Marxism is this threat. It is secularism. It is atheism. It is against the family. It is all these terrible things. And maybe it's also influencing the hippies and corrupting our youth so we need to create a strong nuclear family this is the war on the family that that i grew up here mm-hmm. um yeah yeah and then that becomes yeah, this 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 dominating idea that now is is very strongly taught uh, am i summarizing you well yeah yeah that's part of it so the the cold war backdrop is certainly part of it um, but here, too, if we look at, at the kind of uh, origins of family values conservatism, uh, we also have to place that against the backdrop of the civil rights movement. Uh, so it's, you know, Cold War, kind of externally, civil rights movement uh, domestically. And, you know, I try to sketch this out in my book um, by looking at, uh, for instance, questions of segregationism and uh the mobilization of the religious right uh, was not primarily or originally around 
issues like abortion, for example, and other historians have, have charted this out um, before me. Um, but what really did mobilize uh, evangelicals along partisan lines in the 1960s and 1970s was other uh, in the South opposition to uh, desegregation of schools. Uh, the defense of their white flight academies, their private Christian schools that were established to resist desegregation, right? Those sorts of things. But um, then these are presented in terms of kind of neutral values. So, um, you know, against government control, which also sounds very Marxist. Um, but what that meant in the time is federal government intervention in racist local practices, right? And so, so those are the kinds of things, but, but it's about parental control, um, anti-big government, um, but in the local context at the time, it was also very much about race and preserving segregation um, and preserving um, uh, really white uh, Christian power, uh, white patriarchal power in those contexts. So it, what you're saying is this story was kind of developed to fight against Marxism, but then as these other racial issues became more pressing, people kept with this mythology in this idea because it kept their it kept things safe that they wanted to keep safe, such as their private schools and keeping things segregated. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, it is, and it kept things safe, and it um, it preserved their power. Right. That that's that's another theme through the book is. Uh, just understanding the role of powerful evangelical leaders in consolidating their own power. And one of the ways that I saw them do this uh, at various moments throughout my research was by stoking fears among mm. their followers. So, um, you know, and, and those, what, what their followers should be afraid of changed over time. So be afraid of the communists. Be afraid of the liberals, be afraid of the feminists, be afraid of the secular humanists. And then fast forward, be afraid of uh, radical Islam, be afraid of those who are going to take away your religious liberty, be afraid of the people in the church down the road who don't hold to the truth that we hold to. All right, so so I saw that rhetoric over and over again. And I think traditionally, in, in, in light of 2016 in particular, a, a popular narrative to explain evangelical support for Trump was that they were just so afraid, so desperate, right, that they were losing their religious liberties. They were facing demographic decline, and they just, you know, kind of ran into his arms because they were just so afraid. The research that I that I uh, uncovered in this book, uh, in writing this book, showed me that I, I needed to flip that around in many cases, that in many cases it seemed the militancy came first, Mm. and that powerful leaders needed to continually stoke fear in the hearts of their followers in order to maintain that militancy, to maintain their own power. So somebody like Jerry Falwell Sr., Mark Driscoll, the whole story of these like you know, kind of fake ex-Muslim terrorists, right, that really just fabricating fear in order to... Uh, enhance your own power because they offered the power of um, protection. And that, that was a, a valuable, um, uh, you know, uh, offering as long as people were afraid or desperately afraid. And, you know, it was the, their, the fate of, of this, their faith and their nation and their family, their very own children. So, of course, they are going to follow you where you lead them. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that was something that really stood out to me this past year was just seeing the scandal around Jerry Falwell Jr. And just realizing, you know, he was one of the first people that endorsed Donald Trump and and then he's leading, he was leading uh, Liberty University where I almost attended. I decided to go somewhere else for to study uh, for my doctorate. But um, just realizing there's certain people in charge and they might have inherited this or they might have earned it in, in various ways. But there's people in charge and their character, like nobody elected them. There wasn't a church con convention. Like... How does somebody, who runs evangelicalism and what do they get out of it? That is such a good question. Who runs evangelicalism? I mean, I, uh, I started off to write this book and I just wanted to write on uh, evangelical masculinity and militarism. That's the thread I wanted to pull through and see where I ended up. Uh, and very quickly, I discovered I, you know, I need to define evangelicalism. Yeah. And uh, easier said than done. Because uh, the popular kind of scholarly definition of evangelicalism is primarily a theological one. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, for history nerds out there, it's called the Bevington Quadrilateral. Um, so emphasis on the authority of the Bible, conversionism, activism, the atonement of Christ. Um, and, and that's uh, kind of how evangelical leaders also like to self-identify. So you go to the website of the NAE, National Association of Evangelicals, they'll use that, and they'll say, this is who we are, this is who evangelicals are. But in the research I was doing, that just didn't really seem to get at the essence of who evangelicals were and how evangelicalism worked. I, I knew so many evangelicals, and you know, my, my own students coming through my classroom doors, um, for whom theology was not, did not seem to be a priority. Their theological illiteracy was pronounced. Um, surveys um, uh, bear that out in terms of, you know, an alarming number of quote-unquote evangelicals hold to heresies. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I started thinking, so what is evangelicalism? If it's not adhering to a theological rubric when most people are actually theologically illiterate. And so I, I came to think of evangelicalism much more as a historical and cultural movement, as a network of alliances and organizations, institutions held together through, um, uh, again, these, these uh, kind of partnerships, uh, uh, kind of um, distribution networks, very important, because as I came to see, popular culture really helps define evangelicalism and really helps um, kind of form evangelical identity. So that's why in my own book, I look at popular literature, things like Wild at Heart, you know, Christian publishing, Christian radio, Christian television. And to me, it seems like that really gets at the heart of who is in and outside the evangelical fold, who has been formed by this media culture and, and how deeply um, and, and, and so that's what I ended up doing. So with my student researchers who provided amazing assistance for this project, at one point, actually for many months, we had these huge pieces of butcher paper out in my office with sticky notes all over them, um, sticky notes with individuals, organizations, and then we had Sharpie, like, webs connecting them to show okay, John Piper invited Doug Wilson onto his podcast, and this guy blurbed that guy's book, and Lifeway Christian Books sold these books until this happened and then didn't, right? And so really thinking of evangelicalism as this 
web. Uh, and, um, and, and where popular culture was really at the center of it, much more so than formal theology, although formal theology does play a role. So, um, so that's a very complicated answer, but I think it's a more accurate answer than some sort of a, a kind of generic, timeless theological rubric that ends up not really getting at the heart of how evangelicalism works. So there are leaders. Within this evangelical movement, um, some of them are self-appointed leaders. Some of them um, have a lot of followers, a lot of influence, I think particularly through the media. Um, others have, I think, much more limited influence than they might realize. So if you go to kind of the traditional Wheaton College Christianity Today, um, quote-unquote, evangelical leaders, mm-hmm. I think one thing that they've discovered in recent years is they actually have a lot less power and a lot fewer followers than they maybe imagined, and that evangelicalism is largely a populist movement at this point, and that's where the popular media is really important, and and that's where we have to look at, you know. It's not that folks at Christianity Today are not evangelicals. It's just their power is constrained by this more powerful wing of of populist um, conservative evangelicalism. Yeah. Yeah, and... well, two things I've noticed. One is that when I started going to, like, I've, I've, uh, I'm a podcast guy, which is why I'm making podcasts. And, and I think yeah. that evangelicalism is very strong in the podcast world in these new mediums. And I've realized that some of the more traditional, you know, Christianity Today and things like that, they're actually more moderate than evangelicalism. Um, well, yeah. maybe, that's a, maybe that's a broad statement. But m- more what I wanted to say is that as we're in this process and I'm trying to push back against unhealthy, toxic ideas and I'm, you know, posting on social media and I'm raising discussions about, you know, the things that were not healthy and trying to, Hey, like, why are we worshiping Donald Trump? We're only supposed to worship Jesus. And it's fine if he's a politician, but we're worshiping him. And and I'm trying to raise these awareness of, you know, gender and, and different things. And that has absolutely nothing to do, almost nothing to do with my local church. It almost has nothing to do with, you know, my mentors and people that, like, a lot of them are on on board with what I'm saying. And it's almost like I'm fighting a nameless foe. I'm fighting somebody that, like, I don't know who you are, but, like, you you have really influenced me, but I don't know who you are. Um, like, who who is it? <laughs> I mean, certainly right, I've listened right. to John Piper and Mark Driscoll and raised with um, uh, James Dobson's materials, and my wife was very influenced by Bill Gothard's homeschooling curricula, but yeah. usually when we think of church, you think of the local pastor, but it seems like the local pastor yeah. was fairly constrained in the actual power that he really had. Absolutely. That, that, is, that is what we are seeing. Local pastors are incredibly constrained. I've talked with many of them. Many have contacted me since the publication of this book. Uh, they are very limited in what they can say uh, from the pulpit or what they can say even in private. Uh, they are well aware that they will, will very quickly lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. If if they come out against you know not just Donald Trump against this whole kind of belief system, uh, and and so they are very constrained. I think that you know places like Christianity Today are absolutely seeing the theme um, in terms of what 
you know, you're walking a very fine line and trying to, you know, be the flagship evangelical magazine and uh, not alienate, you know, those uh, conservative subscribers who still remain with them. Uh, and, and so what I really tried to do in this book, too, was not draw too uh, sharp a line between the moderates and the extremists. Again, this question of, like, is this, mar- is this mainstream or is this fringe was something that, that like, I sat with through this entire research project. In my conception of, of where the mainstream was shifted over the years as I was doing this research, but also my awareness of the relationship between the two. And that's why in the book, um, for example, I talk about Bill Gothard in the same chapter as I talk about James Dobson. Mm-hmm. So Gothard, clearly fringe, although deeply influential, as your wife could probably attest. Yep. Uh, but, but then Dobson, when push comes to shove, they're saying pretty similar things, and they are certainly reinforcing one another when it mm-hmm. comes to authority, when it comes to patriarchy, uh, when it comes to power. And, uh, and so that became an intriguing question for me. What is the relationship between the kind of outward-facing, popular Dobson, you know, evangelicalism, and even Christianity Today evangelicalism? You know, when are they going to platform these more extreme folks? Uh, and, and they do. And, and then who gets excluded, right? And, and, and so what we see is in the 2000s, um, some pretty racist individuals can still be, you know, brought in the fold as, you know, my brother in Christ. Uh, but then somebody like Rachel Held Evans or more recently Jen Hatmaker uh, cross the line on LGBTQ or I mean, we could talk Rob Bell. Um, on how and and you're outside the fold. So that became like this kind of this project for me of who stays inside the fold and on what terms, and who is is no longer welcome. And uh, and that's where I think uh, entities like Christianity Today, some of these more respectable, uh, you know, mainstream evangelical organizations and institutions are also implicated in this story, even if in 2016 or 2020 they are looking around saying, you know, what has happened? I think they need to interrogate their own their own role in uh, the, this process in what evangelicalism has become. Mm-hmm. Something that we've discussed on this podcast, obviously with um, experience with uh, Bill Gothard, we've been very marked by purity culture, and by a very chauvinistic version of gender roles. Um, What I'd be curious about is why did gender become such a big deal for evangelicals? Because throughout church history, Christians, I mean, the Bible's a big book. It has a lot of different issues. And Christians have defined themselves. I mean, there's always a question of who are we essentially? And what is the defining kind of the boundary outside? Like if you go over this line, you're not part of us anymore. What What is the issue? Uh-huh. And it has been different things throughout church history, but it feels like for us uh-huh. now, I mean, if you come out as gay, you're out. Um, yep. And if you come out in support of, you know, egalitarianism or feminism or something, depending where you are, you're probably very much out. Um, and so like that, it, it feels like that has just become such an important thing when it doesn't seem to be a huge part of the New Testament as far as how many verses are dedicated to it. Um, right. 
but somehow it's become kind of a defining issue for us. And can you explain to me why that is? Oh, I wish I could. <laughs> I think honest, I, I can give you some answers, but then on, on a really fundamental level, it still is kind of a mystery. Right? It, okay. I think the best way that I can grapple with it um, is uh, it, it really does come down to power. Um, the heart of this whole book is, is really a question of power and what is the relationship of um, like power and the Christian faith. And the, the story that I tell is, is really a disheartening one in which really the primary work of so many of these evangelical leaders really does seem to come down to preserving their own power. Mm-hmm. And gender is one of the primary ways in which power is kind of distributed. Uh, and, and so it's just this organizing principle. Uh, now there are, you know, there are certainly readings of the scriptures and certain, like, uh, hermeneutics, ideas of inerrancy that will give uh, extra weight to particular passages around gender. But it's always good to ask, you know, well, why aren't other passages found in the scriptures given the same kind of inerrant authority when it comes to, say, you know, selling your possessions, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, loving your enemy, and things like that. Um, but um, uh, I would also say that, you know, gender become so important in part because it isn't just about gender. Gender is always connected to other other um, values, to other um, convictions. And so, again, in, in this Cold War crucible, gender became very tightly linked to uh, a, a, a very militant conception of Christian America, that the, these things were just so tightly connected. So to defend Christian America which, again, required a military defense, toughness, aggression. Uh, that's why God made men um, the way he did, filled with testosterone. Uh, so that idea of gender difference, and particularly the masculine role, was so tightly linked to their idea of what Christians were called to do, which was to defend with brute force, if necessary, uh, their faith and their nation, because the two were, were inextricable. Christian America. And so it becomes almost impossible to kind of uproot this belief system um, because because gender is so tightly linked to these underlying values. And, and underneath all of that, again, is this idea of power, of, you know, this aggress- aggression is necessary to what, to preach preach the gospel of Christ, which is really at the heart of it, is divesting oneself of, of power? No, it, it really seems like uh, this aggression is in order to secure our positions of power. I mean, so that we can do good is, you know, kind of the next, but, but the focus really does end up being we need power, we need to keep it, and so these ideas of gender are very close to closely linked to that underlying conception of power. And if you're going to mess with their gender ideals, you're, you're going to really um, strike at the heart of, of their faith. And we see that. So I was surprised in my reading to see, you know, like somebody like Wayne Grudem, for example, which I thought, oh, yes, he has ideas about, you know, male headship, and, and he's systematic theologian, and, and yet so much of his writing was about, you know, women in the military will destroy our nation, right? things like that. And so gender difference wasn't just about interpreting a couple biblical passages and trying to apply that to, you know, should women preach or not. It was, 
tightly linked to this entire value system, which in the end, um, to me as a person of faith, it it does seem to be a a corruption of the essence of the gospel. Yeah. Um, And that certainly, you know, as a man, sometimes I look at that and I think, well, you don't have a very high estimation of me, of of my self-control, of my ability to handle criticism. Um, there's sometimes this idea that I'm so weak emotionally that my wife has to compliment me so that I can get out there and, you know, be able to face the day. Um, but that's perhaps a drop in the bucket compared to, as I, as I start to read books too and about women, um, kind of coming out of purity culture, I realize, oh, there's a whole side of this that myself as a man, I haven't been dialed into that yes, this isn't great, this message isn't great for men, but it also kind of does preference us. Can you comment on what is the weight of this on women? Um, There was such this need to create this idea of what men were so we could fight in in the Cold War, and then this kind of gets perpetuated, it props up power. But where does that leave women? Yeah, women have a very clearly defined role to play. Uh, They are to be the opposite of this vision of masculinity. Uh, They are to be sweet and submissive and hyper-feminine. And that submission takes place within the family, within the church, within society, and um, sexually as well, right? And so a lot of this book is, is really looking at Christian or evangelical teachings on sexuality. And uh, so, you know, the man is filled with um, both aggression and lust, and again, you know, testosterone, <laughs> this is how God made him. And, and so it really is up to the women to not tempt men who are not their husbands, and so there you have modesty in this purity culture, and it will always be the woman's fault if a man steps out of line in, in often just horrifying ways. You know, I, I came across time and again where even where, where women were blamed for their own abuse and even young girls uh, you know blamed for somehow seducing a man because you know men will be men uh, and, and so it, it holds up this ideal of purity for women um, but then within the marriage relationship it is on the wife to fulfill her husband's every sexual need and uh, and she needs to do that right in the bedroom. She needs to do that by propping up his ego, by being feminine, by not usurping his power. And, you know, generations of Christian women have read this literature, have been advised by their pastors, by their pastor's wives, have been told that this is what it means to be a faithful Christian woman. And, um, and many have, have tried um, desperately to fulfill that role. And and there are some just devastating stories and I mean the last the, the last chapter of the book looks at uh, sexual abuse and abuse mm-hmm. of power within evangelical communities. And um, I mean to me in some ways the most tragic parts of the stories it's not just the, the the horrid acts of perpetrators, of pastors, of men in authority But almost more horrifying is the reaction among the community, the church community, even families, of um, in the face of that evil, still finding a way to blame the victim, Mm -hmm. to, um, you know, support, condone, very quickly forgive the perpetrator in order to protect the brand, protect the witness, you know, fill in the blank, 
And it's so often, this is such a repeated pattern, it's, it's the victims who end up on the outside of the community. And since this book has, um, has released uh, this past summer, I've heard from many, many women, uh, some of whom I actually tell their stories in that chapter, to saying thank you. Thank you for helping them make sense of something that never really made sense. It doesn't make it better. It doesn't make it go away. But it, it, it provides some answers, right? It wasn't them. Um, and to understand how their own families, their own church communities could uh, could really betray them, uh, it makes sense as part of this larger pattern. Yeah. And that's something I... We have a podcast a few, like earlier in our series, where I discussed um, my upbringing in domestic abuse. And I've just recently kind of come to terms with that and that's part of what energizes me then to say like this is not okay there's a lot of things that are not okay with the way that we handle you know survivors of abuse versus the abusers and you know a question that i asked on social media that i kind of just heard crickets from is why is it that homosexuality that's completely out there there's no coming back there's no forgiveness but um, domestic abuse basically gets a free pass, you know, especially yeah. if it's verbal, yeah. if it's emotional, if it's spiritual. I mean, the guy can or the, the woman can completely overcome that. They can weave it into their testimony. They can say that, you know, I used to do that sometimes, but I've overcome. You know, there's such a double standard and it just shows what things are priorities and what things really are not a priority. And perhaps they're not a priority because they actually fit with the DNA of this this sort of message. Exactly. Yeah, you're exactly right. So um, same-sex relationships really strike at the heart of this gender difference that is really at the foundation of their conceptions of power and of, you know, quote-unquote Christian orthodoxy. And, uh, and so I think that's one way of understanding how that becomes such a defining issue and such a, a, a kind of deal breaker from the 1970s on. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in the case of domestic abuse, you're exactly right. This is like, well, God made men this way. God made women to be this way. And if, if, if abuse happened, well, what did she do to provoke him, right? Was she not, was she not sufficiently submissive? Was she not fulfilling his roles? Was she not meeting his sexual needs, right? And so there is this framework that is ready to, to be used to justify even egregious behavior uh, because it kind of falls in line. And, and it's, it's not that they'll say, you know, abuse is great, but there's this, um, you know, we understand this, where this came from. And, you know, how much can you really blame him? Uh, you know, <laughs> again, excuses, forgiveness. Whereas the woman is held to this impossible ideal, and and so it's very easy to end up blaming blaming uh, victims, blaming survivors. It's almost like if you have an, a guard or attack dog to keep your family safe, and then if the dog bites somebody, you think, well, it, that's just what dogs do. They've, I've trained him to right. to protect us, but exactly like. Doesn't the Bible hold us men to a better standard than to be out of control? Um, that's what just just is very odd to me when I look at these issues. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it doesn't seem to... I, I, I mentioned this a couple of times in the book, that you know, many of the evangelicals who are uh, supporting this kind 
kind of militant patriarchy and the boys will be boys masculinity. Um, it, many of them end up they, they're they're Calvinists. They're Reformed. I mean, I happen to be in the Reformed Calvinist tradition, and you know, for me, it's like, well, wait a minute. Doesn't our tradition really stress um, the pervasiveness of sin mm-hmm. and the corrupting effects of sin? And therefore, you know, we should all be humble, and we should we need accountability. And yet, here we have. Uh, you know, communities who are totally propping up men as authority figures, structuring communities around this hierarchical authority where you absolutely must submit and defer to the authorities that God, God has placed above you. This is very Gothard-esque, um, but it's really, you know, uh, a, a trait of conservative evangelicalism more generally, this very hierarchical authority structure. But where does sin come into that, right? It, where, what about the sin um, that might corrupt the actions of those authority figures? Where is the accountability built in? And often that accountability is sorely lacking. And yet the community has been inculcated in, you know, you must submit to authority. You must defer to the, you know, the man that God has placed in power above you. And that creates these environments that are just, you know, right for uh, the abusive practices that we see, and not just the abusive practices, but then, again, no way to really extricate themselves from this without enormous self-guilt, without enormous, you know, what did I do wrong here? Uh, and so it really does produce a toxic culture and, and it is really um, devastating, honestly, to, to, to hear these stories. Uh, I'll add that, you know, since since the book has published, I've heard from a number of, of people in other countries as well. You mentioned about, you know, in Canada, uh, the these teachings and this popular evangelical culture absolutely crosses borders. Uh, you know, I've heard from people in uh, China and uh, the Netherlands and Australia and absolutely Brazil, uh, Kenya, who tell stories of this particular ideology, these teachings, writings by John Piper, um, teachings by, by James Dobson, that have been uh, kind of imperializing global Christianity as well, and hearing stories of similarly devastating uh, consequences in terms of abusive cultures. Mm. Uh, and so, so this is a global thing, and of course it, it's not just American religion being exported, but it's being exported and then embraced in local contexts, which are often patriarchal on their in their own right. Um, and I mean, that's something I've actually been been struggling with um, in in learning more since this book has come out on just how far this toxicity has spread and trying to you know uh, join together with activists and leaders in other countries to think what can we do to to extricate this. So kind of a big question I want to ask you is, what about Marxism? And the setup for this is, uh, I have been aware, so in Canada there were, there were laws passed about you needed to use people's pronouns or else there would be consequences. And uh, Jordan Peterson was a professor at the University of Toronto that stood against that and said, okay, we need to have free speech. And, you know, I, this was a couple of years ago, so I was definitely team Peterson. Now, you know, things are shifted, things are fluid for myself, but I'm still kind of like, well, we do need free speech, and there are some people on the far left that seem to be trying to shut down free speech. 
And um, Peterson and other people would, would call them neo-Marxists, meaning, you know, they're trying to have this kind of takeover, this authoritarian takeover of the academy and, and various public spaces. Uh-huh. And like, I kind of feel like there's something there that is dangerous to keep our eye on. But I also feel like the words Marxism and socialism get thrown around to insult anybody that we don't agree with. So I'm just curious, yeah. like, is Marxism taking over universities uh, or not? Oh, that's such a hard question. Um, I'll try to keep it brief, but um, I mean, there, there definitely is uh, Marxist influence uh, in in universities. There are many influences in universities. Uh, and Marxism does not, uh, I mean, it, it, it takes many uh, kind of different expressions. And, you know, critical Marxist theory is a very helpful academic tool. And I would say a helpful tool for many Christians, too, if you're interested in kind of how sin uh, works, uh, how power can be distorted. But um, uh, it, this free speech issue, I think it's, it's good to kind of get your bearings that it, uh, there is, as much a cancel culture, if you will, on the right mm-hmm. as there is on the left. And uh, so, you know, uh, working to protect free speech is good. Um, you should be looking to the left and the right as you're, as, as you're pursuing that. Um, but I, I would also say that for Christians, they should probably separate out um, their uh, investment in protecting free speech from their Christian witness, because I don't think the two can be easily mm. conflated. Mm. And that, uh, you know, if I think Christians use their cultural influence to model a gracious way of being in the world, to mo- model not just free speech, but speaking truth in love. And what does that look like? So maybe you m- may say that you have permission to misgender somebody, but should you do that? Is that the loving thing to do? Um, is that what you want to be known for as your public witness? Uh, or do Christians uh, you know, want to model a very different way of being? And then maybe when they do so, they will have much more credibility to argue for things like free speech in the political sphere mm-hmm. uh, and, and much more credibility. And I actually fear that through the approach that many conservative Christians are taking on issues like like this, on issues like religious liberty, um, of, of uh, kind of embracing this militancy and very much protecting themselves and, you know, their perceived threat, rather than, you know, being driven by how can we love our neighbors. I actually fear that in the long term, they're going to do much more harm than good to the causes that they care about, like religious liberty and like free speech. Yeah. Thank you for that answer. So are you, you're still a Christian? Yeah. Um, and yet you're not on board with this radical masculinity and this politicization of religion and um this evangelical culture so how especially as a canadian because uh i had a friend that i was discussing this with over in britain and he was just kind of shocked he said look you're a canadian you have a wonderful heritage and history you don't need to be sucked into american culture but from my perspective i don't know how to sort through it i just 
there's just this tidal wave of, of stuff coming at me and it's all produced in the United States. How do you yeah. sort through yeah. it? Uh, and how do you yeah. sort through, uh, because the messages are just woven all throughout, it feels like. I mean, even the Trinity, yeah. according to some people, the way I was yep. taught it, you know, the, the son submits to the father in the same way that the wife submits to the husband. So, yeah. you know, right all the way to the Trinity, it's it's been woven in, it's been taught um, from, from floor to ceiling. So how do you um, separate out that stuff from your authentic Christian and, and historic Christian faith? Yeah, um, so, and I, I will to make this the last question. I'm sorry about that, but um, uh, let me let me close by saying that, um, I mean, I, I am a practicing Christian, and the Christianity that I have um, embraced is, is just, it's, it's not this. It's not nationalistic. It's not patriarchal. It's not, uh, you know, it's not wrapped up around the, uh, a grasp of power. It is the precise opposite. And it is an impossible Christianity because of that, right? It is, it is absolutely countercultural. And that's what draws me to it. That's what draws me to the, the Christ of the Gospels. And that's what draws me to the historic Christian faith, which has rarely lived up to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that still is what I aspire to. That is what I place my hope in. And so I attend a church that has beautiful liturgies. It's a Christian Reformed church. Um, it's, uh, you know, prophetic preaching, and it inspires me and challenges me every day. I also make a point of uh, listening to Christians who are not white and not American. And it's a good reminder that, you know, for all the attention that white American conservative Christians get, and I confess I contributed to that a little bit in this book, you know, profiling them, uh, there, there are many other Christians and many other evangelicals uh, even. Um, but the black prophetic tradition is one in particular that uh, I have found very life-giving um, and that, you know, this this life-giving, flourishing Christianity is found outside of American evangelicalism, of white Christianity, and I just try to stay attuned to that. And and then, you know, the fate of the, the church, the fate of Christianity does not rest on one particular community and ultimately does not rest on any of us. Well, Kristen, I wanted to thank you so much for your time. And uh, again, thank you for writing this book. Is there any websites or anything that you want to draw attention to before we close? Uh, sure. So I'm on social media, on Twitter, at KK Dumez. Uh, so it's K-K-D-U-M-E-Z. Sounds like Dumez. Uh, I also uh, am on Facebook, Kristen Colvis Dumez, uh, public author page. And I'm very active in both of those spaces. And I love to interact with, with readers um, out there on social media. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Hope Thank you. you. I really enjoyed this. Hope you have a good day. All right. Take care. Thank you so much. And sorry to have to cut you off. Oh. I have another meeting I'm running to, but um, <laughs> that's, that's very nice to chat. I really appreciate it. Thank Sounds you great. Thank you so much. Uh huh. Take care. You too. Thank you for joining us on the Seeking Health podcast. And if you want to listen to some other podcasts, um, a really great podcast is Deconstructing Together, where we kind of lay out our journey. 
And uh, you can also listen to Domestic Abuse, I'm a Survivor, and the podcast on Purity Culture, as well as ATI. Those are some great podcasts that interface with this podcast. Have a good day. Bye.